thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and I'm so glad you've joined me. I think you're going to find today very fascinating and an episode that you're going to want to share with your friends. I think you're going to hear some things today that will hopefully pull together what we've been talking about the last few weeks. And to be honest, there are things that you're just not going to hear from a pulpit in a church. I'm, I'm not saying that to uh, be critical, but, but the nature of our Sunday morning, Sunday evening services is that they do not lend themselves to the stuff you're about to hear that I believe will be so helpful to you in making sense of your world and what's going on around you and ultimately why Christianity is true and you can put your your faith and you can put your thinking and your reasoning on the solid ground of who God is as revealed in Scripture. So today, for those who maybe are just now tuning into the Foundation Series we started a couple of weeks ago, for those of you who just may need a bit of refresher, which actually is is me. I always go back and listen to the prior week's podcast before recording the next one. So uh, we've asserted a few things, and I want to tick them off uh, here quickly. The first is, the foundations of Western civilization have been overthrown. We have experienced what moral philosopher Michael Hanby, referenced in the first podcast in this episode, called a total revolution. And since we look more specifically at law and government, I've said that the foundations of law and government in our society have been overthrown as well. We know that the revolution is the rejection of God, specifically as the starting point for our thinking about how to make a case for a certain public policy. And specifically, we've looked at that in the context of abortion. Now, as I indicated last week, we may all say that, no, I believe in God, and I start with God in my thinking, but the way we go about making our case for public policy, as was demonstrated in the Dobbs abortion oral arguments and in most all the briefs, is that we we say we believe in God, and then it becomes irrelevant to how we go about doing things. And that's why I said Christianity, as it is practiced and presented today, has no solution to the problems we face in our culture. Now, the problem we face in our culture, again, going through what we've established, is what both Christians and humanists, atheists, would call the problem of the one and the many. This has been going on since the first known real philosopher Thales in Greece. What is the essence of, of things? Um, and they tried to boil it down to one thing, you know, that it's, that it's water. And then somebody said, no, it's fire. And then somebody said, no, it's earth. And, and, and ultimately they said, well, wait a minute, if there are multiple things, earth, water, fire, air, then what provides any sense of unity? And so there became the thought of uh, the quintessential, the fifth element. What was the, the fifth thing that would provide unity to those four other things? 
fire, water, air, and earth or matter. So anyway, this is an ancient problem. It's been going on forever. And we noted that you really have to have some kind of ultimate interpretive principle by which to resolve these questions of the one and the many. So we, we looked just briefly at, at COVID. What is more ultimate, more important? What's the, the driving interpretive principle for dealing with COVID? My individual rights and autonomy or that of society and others to be protected as much as possible from the virus I may be carrying, which is more important, okay? So that example makes it clear that this problem of the one and the many is not just some philosophical abstract thing, but it gets down to the question of authority. Who wins in these debates, the individual or society? It's interesting that this past week, there was actually an article in Fox News about Howard Stern, who's always raged against anything suppressing individual autonomy. He wants his individual autonomy. He's going to be the shock jock. Who can tell me what I can and cannot say, right? Now, all of a sudden, he's scared to death of COVID. And so he wants the government to mandate that everybody have a vaccine, in his words, so I can live. I, I want to be able to go out and I don't want to have to worry about it. I'm going to die because of you. you. You see, he can't figure out, do I like really the one, me? I'm God. I get to say and do whatever I want. And nobody in the FCC or whatever can regulate me. Oh, nope. Now I want the government to come along and mandate something to everybody else because of me. See, when you become God, you, you ultimately have to control other people because that's, you know, ultimately what a sovereign God does, right? But anyway, I'm getting off the subject. And I, I want us with that background today, I want to demonstrate how the United States Supreme Court has no answer to the problem of the one and the many and goes back and forth between these two concepts of a need for unity yet respecting the diversity that is known as us each individually. Now, as, as we begin to look at, at some of what the court has been doing, I want you to put this into the back of your head. If we are made in the image of God, and the Bible says we are, then we cannot know who we are until we first know who God is. If you look through Scripture, I just spent some time in, in 2 Peter this week. He keeps talking about, over and over, come to the knowledge of God. Come to the knowledge of God. The most important thing you can do is come to the knowledge of God. That's our interpretive principle, who God is. It's why the Scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, no man can lay any foundation other than that which is laid in Jesus Christ. And we'll come back to that in a different episode, but, but just hold that in the back of your head and, and see, that's the problem that Mr. Stern has. He, he, he doesn't really know who he is. He's a person who wants his autonomy. He's a person who wants tyranny for the sake of his autonomy. And we tie ourselves up in knots and conundrums and contradictions. And the only sense that we can make of all of that if we don't know who God is, as he really is, is what John Denver said in one of his songs. Life ain't nothing but a funny, funny riddle. But a riddle without an answer is depressing. And that's why the man without God will turn to anything he or she can find other than God to distract them from life's riddle. 
Now, let's turn and put the spotlight on the Supreme Court, and I think you're going to find this fascinating. And again, I would suggest that you, you share this with your friends. And, and what is really fascinating to me, and I confess, this, this didn't really drive itself home to me until I was preparing for today's episode. But in a way, it shouldn't be, have been surprising to me, it shouldn't be surprising to you, that the clearest demonstration of the court's inability to solve any of the problems of the one and the many philosophical tools available to you. Now, notice I didn't say theological tools because they reject the idea of God, but with the philosophical tools available to them is demonstrated in the context of man and woman. Isn't that fascinating? Because right there is the fundamental mystery of the one and the many. The unity we know we want, that neither male nor female is more valuable in any real or ultimate sense than the other, but yet recognizing the diversity of persons, male and female, that are marked by more than just uh, your anatomy. The question we have to answer is, who are we? And as I said, in the Dobbs oral arguments, even though the constitutional provision at issue refers to the word persons, nobody talked about what a person was. What does it mean to be human? Nobody. You see, we are distinct persons, and we have some functions that are clearly distinct. Reproductive functions, for example. But the unity of those different disparate reproductive functions brings about another diversity, another distinct different person. And, and then there's marriage, another form of unity among distinct persons in our social order. But this one's grounded in covenantal promises, not sexual intimacy. So there, in, in the most fundamental of human relationships between man and woman, as man and woman, joining together as man and woman, is the problem of the one and the many. Now, let's take a look quickly, in the moments we have left, at a few Supreme Court decisions that make it clear the Supreme Court has no clue what it's doing, and with the philosophical, godless, non-theological principles by which it's trying to interpret the Constitution, it can't come up with any conclusive, definitive, unifying answers and goes back and forth all the time. I'm going to start with a decision called Griswold versus Connecticut's 1965 case. In that case, the um, legislature of Connecticut had passed a law that prohibited the distribution of contraception, uh, contraceptive materials, even to a husband and a wife. Of course, that outraged some people, and, and to me, it was a stupid law. But I guess if you're heavily Catholic, which maybe Connecticut is, you would say, no, no, we, we, we shouldn't have prophylactic devices. Um, we're frustrating God's intent for us to be procreated. But here's what the court said. Now, now listen to this because you're going to hear the beginning of abortion in these words. It's talking about other cases, and it says, the Bill of Rights, our cases show, have penumbras formed by emanations from those guarantees that help give them life and substance. There's more that could be said about that. That's a profound statement, but we'll move on. Various guarantees create zones of privacy. Okay, well, 
okay, you can't search my home, so that there's a zone of privacy maybe in my home, right? Uh, can't make me um, testify against myself, so there's a zone of privacy with my mouth and my own thinking, uh, you know, whatever it might be. So then it goes on and, and, and takes that concept and says marriage is a coming together for better or for worse, hopefully enduring, and intimate to the degree of being sacred. Now listen to these next words. It is an association that promotes a way of life, not causes. In other words, there's something to this relationship that is true about what it is. It doesn't cause so much a way of life as it is a way of life. They go on. It is a harmony in living. Ah, so it's an association, but there's a harmony. See? An association would imply distinctives, two different, three different, four different, whatever. I guess we'll find that out someday. But yet there's a harmony in, in living, in life, not political faiths. So it's something deeper than just mere agreement like politics might be. A bilateral loyalty, not commercial or social projects. This is something. It's a real thing out there. It's a, a diversity and a unity. Now, in 1972, in a case called Eisenstein versus Baird, the legislature had to deal with the legislature's effort to get around Griswold versus Connecticut. So the legislature said, okay, we're going to acknowledge that you said there's a zone of privacy in the marital relationship because it's something special and unique and there's a unity there and the government ought not drive a wedge into that. But we are going to limit then the sale of prophylactics to unmarried people. In other words, we don't want to have this unity of bodies without this covenantal unity taking place. It divides up that unity. It, it breaks apart that unity. And so we're going we're gonna to get around the Griswold case by saying, well, that law now only applies to people who aren't married. Now, here's what the court in Eisenstadt said about Griswold. Because otherwise, you would think, well, the legislature did it right. They said, okay, we're going to stay out of the marital bed. We're going to recognize that, that God has created, this is how the Christian would look at it, this thing called marriage. And he says it has its own jurisdictional authority within the context of the relationship between those two people. And the government needs to be very careful about how it interferes in that relationship. So, so the court in Eisenstein in 72, seven years later, says it's true that in Griswold, the right of privacy in question inherited in the marital relationship. It was inherent to the marital relationship because there was now this thing there, a unity there. But then listen to what the court says. Yet the marital couple is not an independent entity with a mind and heart of its own. There is no one for all and all for one. There is no real sense of bilateral loyalty and harmony in living. And the court continues, but an association of two individuals, each with a separate intellectual and emotional makeup. And the Christian would say, sure, absolutely. That's right. But when you come to be married, you've created a new unity by virtue of competent promises. Eisenstein continues, if the right of privacy means anything, it is the right of the individual 
married or single. See, now all of a sudden we have the autonomy of the individual that trumps and becomes supreme over the unity that the court said inherited naturally in the marital relationship. And that right of the individual is to be free from unwarranted governmental intrusion into matters so fundamentally affecting a person as the decision whether to bear or beget a child. Well, of course, nobody makes that decision by themselves because it takes a unity of male and female to create a child. Now, having said what it just said, that marriage is not really an independent entity, it's not a real thing, it has no real substance, unity, harmony, anything entailed in it other than two individuals, and each is distinct from the other. It says now in Planned Parenthood versus Danforth in 1976, in the, in the context of abortion, and, uh, and I should have mentioned that obviously the next year after Eisenstein, 1973, we had uh, the abortion case, Roe versus Wade where we really separated the, the woman from her child. We divorced that sense of unity and diversity that exists with the separate person of the child, yet their unity in the womb of the woman by umbilical cords. But anyway, so after Roe versus Wade, the Stanforth case comes up in 1976, and there the state of Missouri had said, well, okay, but the woman who is married cannot abort her husband's child without his participating in that decision and agreeing to it, okay? And the Supreme Court said, no, 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 that's unconstitutional. Now, here's what the court says. Notice this. It's in a footnote. As the court recognized in Eisenstadt versus Baird, that's the case we've just been talking about, they quote now, from that case. The marital couple is not an independent entity with a heart and mind of its own, but an association of two individuals, each with a separate intellectual and emotional makeup. And so, the court says, we have to now separate completely the unity of husband and wife and their unity in the act of procreation and the existence of a new life. Now, Okay, if that's what you're going to say, that's what you're going to say. We now come to 2015, the case known as Obergefell versus Hodges, where two men and two women now say, well, they want to be married. And here's what the Supreme Court now says about marriage. Its dynamic allows two people to find a life that could not be found alone, for a marriage becomes greater than just the two persons. <laughs> you like that? Oh, no, no, no. You just told me since, since, uh, since Eisenstein versus Baird and Roe versus Wade and, and Planned Parenthood versus Danforth that, no, there is no separate thing here. You're just agreeing to share bedrooms and sex and split the money up to pay the bill some way, and, and you're each individually and autonomous. And, and now you come along and, and say that, that the dynamic of marriage allows two people to find a life now, isn't that really what, what they said back in Griswold? It's a way of life. It doesn't cause a way of life. It's a, it's a type of life. And you're now saying you, you find a life that can't be found alone, where it's more and greater than just the two persons. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Now, here's what's so ironic about this. The court begins its analysis 
in Obergefell with this sentence, and it is striking. It is a blatant disregard, repudiation of the existence of God as a creator who has established his creation according to laws inherent to the nature of the various things created by which they live and move and have their being, they say instead the Constitution promises liberty to all within its reach, within a lawful realm that allows persons to define and express their identity. Going back to the question, who are we? What am I? How do I make sense of this? Well, we're going right back at the beginning of Obergefell to say it's all about the individual and finding their identity. So therefore, I can find my identity in whatever I think marriage is with whoever I think I should marry because marriage isn't really a real thing. It's an association of two people. So why can't I just have this kind of association? Now, now notice what the court said. Let me, let me read the quote again in, in full. The Constitution promises liberty to all within its reach that allows persons within a lawful realm to define and express their identity. Now, I'm going to talk about this thing within a lawful realm. What does that mean? It sounds like, okay, well, good, there are some legal limits to this thing. But no, no, there really aren't. Because here's what the court then says in the case is it's explaining this. These liberties extend to certain personal choices central to individual dignity. Now, where does dignity come from? I guess it must come from me being able to make my own choices and the law saying I can make my own choices and autonomy. Now, let me read that full statement again. These liberties extend to certain personal choices central to individual dignity and autonomy including intimate choices that define personal identity and beliefs. And it cites two cases to support that proposition. And guess what they are? Eisenstein versus Baird, 1972. Griswold versus Connecticut, 1965. So in other words, the lawful realm is me. The lawful realm is me. Now, as we've said before, that is then an invitation to chaos, disorder, and disunity because everybody can't be their own godlet when they're running into other godlets. So what is the lawful realm? Well, it's going to be decided by the United States Supreme Court. Or at least that's what they think they're going to do. You see, there is no lawful realm established by God. But we have to have a lawful realm. And in our nation, the Supreme Court says, it is us. We establish the lawful realm. We are God, and we, by our rulings, give you dignity and identity. That, my friend, is blasphemy in the eyes of God. And the wrath of God must rest upon those justices and an institution that would say that. And when Christians are unwilling to resist and say, no, when they resist according to the methodologies and, as I said last week, the form of argument that the Supreme Court will permit that says, do not bring the thought of God 
as the foundational assumption and predicate for interpreting reality. Do not bring that into this courtroom. The words of this Constitution are vacuous, meaningless, and I will decide and define them however I please. Then we are complicit in a court raising up something contrary to the knowledge of God and obscuring the glory of God. And if that's how the church is going to operate, according to the philosophical tools of man and the form of argument that man will allow, then it too has no answer to the problems of today. Next week, we're going to look at the beauty of Christianity and how it addresses all of these problems. And I hope you'll join me for next week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.